And when it comes to mental preparation, it requires the same level of the same level of intention as, as any other training program. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, being able to shift to that more internal motivation where you're able to harness that energy when you're having those bad days, that takes practice. It's, and it's not going to happen naturally. Um, and so it's, it's incredibly important that people, that people develop a plan that they invest in being intentional and, and that they put as much focus on their mental training as they would for their physical training. This is episode number 91 with Dr. Mary Ellen Eller. Welcome to Pursuing Health. I'm Julie Fouché, family medicine resident and former CrossFit Games athlete. Here, I bring to you information and inspiration from experts and everyday individuals for how to use lifestyle to maximize health. Thank you so much for joining me. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Hey there, welcome back to Pursuing Health. In this episode, I'm really excited to be covering a topic that you all have been asking for for quite some time, and that is mental training and performance. I was really excited to find the perfect guest to chat about with on this topic, and that is Dr. Mary Ellen Eller. Mary Ellen is a former gymnast who now uses CrossFit as her primary training method. She also happens to be a psychiatrist who specializes in sports psychiatry and how the strategies for performance optimization in sports can carry over into our everyday life. Dr. Eller completed her undergraduate education at Andrews University in Michigan prior to attending Loma Linda University for both her medical school and residency training in psychiatry. I caught up with Dr. Eller recently to talk about everything from using mindset to improve performance in sports and everyday life, finding motivation, using mantras, the impact of perfectionism, and some of the stigma that surrounds mental health in our society today. I felt like I could have talked with her for hours and there were so many other topics that we didn't even get to. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Before we get started, a few quick reminders. First, this episode is produced by CrossFit Beyond the Whiteboard, the best workout tracking in the biz and the one I've been using since 2009. Learn more at btwb.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please head over to iTunes to subscribe and consider giving it a rating. It really does help to get the word out to everyone else. I'm also always looking for inspiring stories to share. So if you or someone you know has used lifestyle to overcome a serious health challenge, please send your story to me at info at juliefouché.com and I'll select some to share here on future episodes. Finally, please remember that although I am now officially a doctor, this podcast is meant to share the experiences of individuals and does not provide medical advice. So with that, let's get started with episode number 91 of Pursuing Health featuring Dr. Mary Ellen Eller. I'm really excited to be here today with Dr. Mary Ellen Eller, who is a psychiatrist and graduating from her residency program in just a few short weeks and focusing in sports psychiatry. So I'm excited to learn a little bit about your path and your journey and then dive into the mental side of preparation. So thanks for coming on. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. 
So I thought maybe we could start and talk a little bit. We have a lot of things in common. We were just talking a little bit about medical training and residency, but um, one of the things we have in common from a young age is how we got started, which is gymnastics. So can you talk, talk a little bit about your background in gymnastics or sports growing up and then how that led into your interest in sports psychiatry? For sure. So I was fortunate to grow up in a family where my mother was a gymnastics coach. So oh. I basically grew up in the gym and it was something that I was always around. Um, when I was fairly young, I think I was about five years old, I got scouted to go and train more and in, more intensely. Um, and so at a young age, I was put into very high pressure situations. But the problem with gymnastics when you're so young and you're performing at you know, a really high level, it's incredibly high impact. And so I ended up officially retiring when I was about 12 years old, because I had subluxed my shoulder so many times and dislocated a knee. And I had so many injuries that um, I had been in physical therapy at that point already for about a year, and ended up spending almost five years um, doing physical therapy, like three to four times a week, just trying to be able to stay functional Mm -hmm. and moving and be a kid and run around and do stuff. Um, But I loved it so much because that's what I had grown up doing. So um, I was fortunate that I was able to transition over into sports acrobatics. And um, in doing that transition, was able to start coaching um, and did a lot of uh, floor, I, I became more of like a floor specialist as far as coaching was concerned and got to do a lot of consulting on the collegiate level. Um, but just the experience of being in gymnastics and gymnastics itself kind of self-selects or maybe creates a lot of anxiety disorders, a lot of eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And so I watched a lot of my friends struggle mm-hmm. and, and not really get the care that they needed. Um, you know, it was almost kind of expected um, to have an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really sad just looking back now and looking at the trajectory of some of the some of the kids that I grew up with and where they are now. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought I was going to become a physical therapist. Um, and fortunately, um, you had to do so many hours of physical therapy observation. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I loved coaching. And I loved working with young people and I loved working with athletes and physical therapy was not what I was, it wasn't a perfect fit for me. Okay. Good Um, to figure that out early. (laughs) Fairly early on. Um, And then I had an opportunity, one of our family friends was an orthopedic surgeon. So I went and I shadowed with him and it was, it was some of the most, oh, it was, it was fascinating watching (laughs) the things that he did and it ended up just triggering me, really motivating me to switch over from physical therapy and switched over into medicine. Okay. And so originally when you went into medicine, you thought maybe you'd be a surgeon. I was thinking I would go that route just because that's all that I knew. Mm -hmm. Um, I love doing things. It's hard for me to sit still. Mm -hmm. So, so I figured being tied to a desk or rounding all day long, it didn't fit very well with my personality. Right. But I realized that that the part of medicine that I liked the most was the ability to really serve as a coach, Mm. to serve as a mentor, to be able to stop, slow down, get a chance to know your patients, get a chance to 
really figure out what's going on in their life Mm -hmm. more so than managing diabetes or fixing a broken bone, but really what it was that motivates them, what makes them tick and what you could do, what kind of interventions you could use to really improve the quality of their life. Mm -hmm. And I surprised myself when I ended up in psychiatry (laughs) because I went into medicine saying that that was the last thing that I would ever do. No way. That's the same thing that happened to me. (laughs) I said family (laughs) medicine was the one thing I knew I wasn't going to do when I started. And I... The first time I told anybody I was thinking about doing doing psych, you know, they were really surprised and not <laughs> not that they weren't supportive, but mm-hmm. you know, they they weren't initially on board mm-hmm. and and realizing at that point that I didn't care what other what other people thought That's about a my great decision. <laughs> I I knew I was a hundred percent convinced. So I jumped I jumped in and I have I have loved every minute of it. It's psychiatry is a really unique opportunity to get to know people on a level that I don't feel most people are privileged Mm -hmm. to be able to have that kind of relationship with people and the ability to translate that over into sports and to be able to work, um, work with athletes, work on enhancing performance in so many different areas of people's life has just been incredibly uh, honoring it's it's such a unique opportunity and it it makes getting up and going to work in the morning so much easier that's so awesome to hear you say that um uh, i a lot of that really resonates with me because i think for similar reasons that's why i chose primary care although now in primary care you don't really get that much time with your patients it's funny we had a a seminar with um a psychiatrist the other day and you know, he was talking to us about managing anxiety and depression in a primary care setting. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we were trying to figure out, you know, what are the best things that we can do in these 15 minute office visits? And he said, Oh, well, you know, my, my initial appointments are 90 minutes. And we were like, Oh, wow. We that would be amazing to be able to spend that much time with patients. But, but I think that, you know, there's a lot that's changing. And I think that, in the end of the day, the relationship, and whether it's a primary care or any other type of provider, the relationship that you established, you know, it doesn't always have to take a lot of time, but the relationship is what's most important. And a lot of times Absolutely. I think most therapeutic for the mm-hmm. patients. Yeah, it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very privileged position to be in, to mm-hmm. be able to be there with people, to be with them on a journey and really, uh, See them succeed. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was coaching and working with gymnastic or with gymnasts. There's no amount of being a good coach that can can make one of your students a good gymnast. Mm-hmm. But I think the power in being a good coach is being able to find that the ability to motivate people to become their best. And I feel like as a physician, your role is is to be able from the outside looking in to see potential. And, and really help motivate people to, to achieve that potential. Mm-hmm. And that may be through better management of health conditions or mental health issues or, or truly just being there to give people hope. Mm-hmm. And that can be different for so many people, but it is, ah, it's such a unique opportunity. Mm-hmm. It's, pretty, it's pretty amazing. It's a, and I, I completely agree. I think that's what drew me to medicine is that 
there's nothing else in the world that you can do that you get that kind of insight into people's lives and be able to be there for them when they're super vulnerable or when they're going through something. Mm-hmm. So very exciting. I wanted to just touch back on gymnastics because you mentioned just the environment and how it tends to breed a lot of anxiety and eating disorders. And I know, I mean, now with everything that's been going on in the gymnastics community over the last like couple of years and everything that's been coming out and talked about in the media, um, there's a lot of attention on that culture of gymnastics and it's made me think a lot about, I mean, I never did it at that high of a level, but Mm -hmm. I saw it all happening. And, um, you know, I grew up in Michigan where Larry Nassar practiced and I, Mm -hmm. you know, I actually did see him once for a, like a back problem was never Mm -hmm. an issue, but you know, I knew so many people growing up who would go to him because he was the gymnastics doctor, but Yep. You know, besides him, there is a lot of, in in gymnastics traditionally, there is a lot of culture of kind of fear and anxiety and, you know, not being able to talk about what you're going through or what's, what's being challenging. Um, mm-hmm. So I would just love to get your perspective on that and kind of how, maybe how that, or how, even how that has affected you seeing all of this now later on. Yeah. I think gymnastics in particular is, it creates a really unique situation because you have such young athletes. I mean, the the average age of retirement for a competitive gymnast is usually around like 16 or 17 mm-hmm. years old. So you have these young kids who are traveling internationally and maybe their parents are allowed to go with them or can afford to go with them. Mm-hmm. But it it often puts you in really risky situations mm-hmm. um, where, you know, as a, as a young female who is in a sport where there's so much pressure put and so much focus put on body image, on being the right size, on looking the part, on there's, there's so much weight on appearance. And especially in any of the judgment-based sports, mm-hmm. um, I think it really breeds it's a perfect breeding ground for eating disorders, mm-hmm. um, but also just a ton of anxiety and self-criticism. And it's really about finding that balance because part of being a good athlete is being able to, to be self-critical, mm-hmm. not in an excessive way, but, but to truly be objective and look and see, you know, what did I do well? What could I do better? Mm-hmm. And I think in gymnastics, it's really easy for that to, to get out of control. Mm-hmm. where where the goal is perfection right you know and and not only to be perfect on the floor perfectly clean in your movements perfectly clean in your appearance perfectly clean in the way that you present yourself when you're interviewed or you're on podium or any of those things and people cannot be on all the time mm-hmm. and you can't expect that from a 12 year old <laughs> and when when you're teaching people that there is value in being tough and that being vulnerable is a weakness because if, if your competitors see you being vulnerable, they're going to know how to get you. They're mm-hmm. going to know how to break you. And, and part of that's, there's truth to that. But we also need to teach, we need to teach our kids about balance. Mm-hmm. We need to teach them the value in being vulnerable and being honest and being truthful and being open about what we struggle with. Because 
nobody is immune to anxiety, to depression, to feelings. Like feelings just happen. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know how to deal with them, they can very easily start to control your life. And I, I feel like as a, as a population, eh, I guess for both genders, we err in different ways. Mm-hmm. But especially for females, you know, it's really looked down upon to be emotional, to, you know, it's stop being a girl, toughen up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if you're going to cry, go cry in a corner. Nobody wants to see that type right. of an approach. Right. And, and it makes it even more difficult for young athletes who struggle with the same things that we all struggle with. The recent data comes out, it shows that one in three, like across the population of the United States, so 33% of people in their lifetime are going to struggle with either clinical depression or anxiety. Mm -hmm. And so expecting so much from people, especially so much from people when they're so young, it just, it really sets them up for failure. Beyond that, when you look at what happened in the, in the gymnastics community, Anytime you put so much power in the hands of one person. So you look at a coach who, mm-hmm. you know, is often spending six to eight hours alone with an athlete. Anytime there's that kind of a power dynamic, you know, I, you have to have such extreme caution because it, it's an opportunity for people to be taken advantage of and to have a lot of kind of mental, mental games that get played and can really mess with you. You know, it's, it's one thing when you're, when you're a collegiate athlete and you have a coach who may, may be more critical, mm-hmm. right? But my hope is that by the time you're in your young 20s, you have a little different approach or can hear feedback a little differently than you would have when you were 12. Right. And the, the times where I see that go poorly and you see how broken these young athletes are, it, it breaks your heart. Mm-hmm. So, ugh. yeah, it's been it's been hard to watch, but it's also been very inspiring to see so many people doing positive things and so many people working for change. So I think because it's, you know, it's there's systemic issues that have been a problem for a long time and people knew it. And now, you know, it's mm-hmm. finally coming to the surface and I think change is, is going to be happening. So that's the you know, silver lining, I suppose. Absolutely. But I really like what you said about perfection, because I think that's another interesting thing that so many people, myself included, um, if you grow up in, whether you're an athlete or a musician or something, um, and you are kind of groomed in this environment of trying to always achieve perfection, whether it's, you know, your grades in school or whatever, um, I think there, then there comes a time in life when you realize that perfection is not attainable and then you have to kind of change your mindset or how you're approaching things. And it's a very interesting process um, because, you know, it can be, I think, and I think we're all kind of programmed that way and then tend to have a lot of negative self-talk or, or you know, using our our failures against us instead of learning opportunities. And so there's a lot of mindset shifts that have to happen. But when you're trying to, or what's your advice or how do you try to help people overcome that, you know, chasing perfection versus using that as maybe just a guiding post of, of trying to get better every day? 
So I, I love the motto of better every day. Mm. I think for a lot of people, being able to sit down and talk about perfection, talk about attainable goals, right? Because we should all aim to be improving every single day. Mm-hmm. Perfection, when I think about perfection versus a healthy pursuit of excellence. Mm-hmm. I like that. <laughs> right? So if you think about you think about perfection, perfection is motivated by fear of failure. Mm-hmm. It's is generally motivated from a very negative or self-critical place. Whereas what I like to think of the opposite of that being, which is the healthy pursuit of, of excellence, right? Mm-hmm. Like I can work, I can work on being better without being bad today. I can continue to be better even though who I am right now is okay or the way I perform right now is okay and mm-hmm. I can still be better as opposed to the approach of second is the first loser and, mm-hmm. and that whole line of thought. So it really, it really comes down to motivation. And, and when you sit down, if you look at um, some of the interviews that have come out from a variety of different Olympic athletes, um, I remember reading an article where they had interviewed Simone Biles after, uh, after the recent Olympics mm-hmm. and just talking about like, what was her approach? Cause mm-hmm. if you look in the world of gymnastics and you want to look at like the greatest gymnast ever, that's who you would that's look That's who to. you look for. Yeah. <laughs> and, and how did, how did she approach competition? And she said something that I thought was just classic bubbly personality of Simone Biles on the floor. But she said that before she went on the floor, she had this mental self-talk that she would go through that went something along the lines of, I've prepared for this moment. Mm -hmm. My body knows what to do. And this is my victory round. Mm -hmm. And just that idea of coming to performance, Mm -hmm. knowing that I've prepared ahead of time and and this is not me proving anything. I've already done the work. I've already proven that I belong here. And this is just my time to shine, mm-hmm. to, to enjoy the fact that I've done the work already. And the results are going to happen. You look at other athletes who, who haven't quite achieved that same level of greatness but are still, still doing well. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are motivated with, with self-talk of like, you work so hard, don't screw it up now yes. type of approach. <laughs> and that puts you in such a different mental framework. Yes. Being able to stop and evaluate and really encourage people to be intentional at paying attention to what their motivation is. You know, if you walk into a CrossFit gym and you approach the workout with, you know, I want to I be better today than I was yesterday, mm-hmm. right? that person is in a very different mental state than someone who walks in and says, I want to be anything but the last on the board Mm -hmm. or I have to beat the person next to me. Mm -hmm. Right. Having that, that internal motivation and that positive motivation makes such a huge difference. And that in itself, I feel is one of the biggest modifiers when you look at perfection. Mm -hmm. Perfection itself is not bad. I think, I think aiming for excellence is something that, that is noble mm-hmm. and, and is something that we should all aim for. Nobody should settle for being good enough. But perfection doesn't always have to be the best. 
Mm-hmm. I, I remember as a kid, I was sitting in the car, and I don't, I don't remember what was leading up to this, but it was one of those like pivotal, pivotal moments mm-hmm. as a kid, sitting there thinking like, I had just won a competition, and it was that moment of like, ah, like I won, like mm-hmm. this is awesome, that feeling like I had made it, I had succeeded, and realizing like, shoot. That just means like I set the bar and now somebody's (laughs) going to beat it. Like there's somebody out there that is already capable of doing more and maybe they didn't do it today. But if I want to stay where I am, like I didn't do myself any favors by setting the bar high today. Right. (laughs) It just means I have to reach further tomorrow. Yeah. (sighs) And it's, oh, it's a terrible trap to get stuck in Yeah. because if that's the mindset and if that is how I wake up and I approach every day, it's vicious mm-hmm. and there's never the opportunity for satisfaction. Well, it's true. It's like you're constantly almost living in fear of like losing that perfection or, you know, falling short of where you were the day before instead of kind of like Simone was saying, being excited to, you know, make the most of the moment or the day or whatever it is. And I think it's interesting what you said about different attitudes when you go walk into a CrossFit gym and when I think you can hear it too, what just by the things that people say as they're milling around kind of waiting for the workout to start, you have the people who are kind of more on a positive light or excited to be there. And then you have people who are, who are there every single day and they put the work in, but it's more of the, Oh, this is going to be awful. This workout's going to, this is going to hurt. I just want to survive kind of attitude and you know if those are the things they're saying out loud then you can only imagine the kind of thoughts that are going through their head oh crossfit gyms are wonderful places (laughs) i bet you have so much fun just listening (laughs) to the conversations that happen there (laughs) sometimes i like to just plant seeds of of terrible things for people to talk about (laughs) oh just see what happens we I, uh, the gym that I go to, we have this 5am class and it's a group of, uh, there's about eight or 10 of us that have been, mm-hmm. have been working out together now for, uh, four or five years. Mm-hmm. And it takes a unique personality to consistently show up at a gym at 5am. It definitely does. Uh, so that group itself probably self-selects for, <laughs> for some unique humans. Oh, well, we have so much fun, but it's, it's so true. That conversation that happens can tell you so much about people's approach to life. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm fortunate that I get to work out with a group of people that, that are open and, and willing to be vulnerable enough to make, to make their negative self-talk a kind of a running joke for the group. Uh-huh. But it's also really cool to see just the support that people are able to offer yeah. and, and really to call them out when they're doing it, like, hey, stop it. Like, you're not, <laughs> you're not mediocre, Dave. Come on. Like, you, you beat us almost every day. Like, stop, stop believing that you're not as good as you are. Right. And it's, oh, it's so much fun. It's so oh, fun. I love that group. And it's so fun how things people say do not match up most of the time at all with their actual performance. Like, it's... And, and that's one of the, one of the coolest things working and and doing therapy with people. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's a a slightly different patient population, but we're all humans Mm -hmm. and we all 
we all have had these lies reinforced to us our entire life. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's those automatic thoughts, those, those negative lies that we tell ourselves that we find evidence for all throughout the day to reinforce that slip out of our mouth when we're in stressful situations, mm-hmm. like right before a workout. Mm-hmm. And it's so true. Because if you stop back and you actually think about like the things that you've just said or the thoughts that you're having, most of the times they are absolutely ridiculous and unfounded. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of trace back like, oh, yeah, I think maybe I know where that could have come from. But for many people, it's those lies, like those automatic thoughts that happen so frequently and without even their awareness a lot of the time mm-hmm. that that can change the course of their entire life. Mm-hmm. So, so helping people learn to be intentional and to catch themselves when they, when they're in those kind of negative thought loops gives so much freedom Yeah, because there is so much freedom in truth. How do you do that? How do you approach that with someone, whether it's, you know, someone sitting in your office or maybe someone at the gym who you're just trying to help them shift their self-talk? Mm-hmm. So for, for the, when I'm working with a patient, one of the primary things that I look for is patterns, right? Mm-hmm. And just in, in daily conversation, if you're, if you're tuned into it, you can hear those thoughts kind of leaking out. Um, some of the most common kind of underlying negative thoughts that get reinforced are, um, fear, like I'm a failure. Mm -hmm. I'll never be good enough. I'm not worthy. No one could ever love me. You know, if someone knew who I truly was, I could never be good enough. Like, and it's those, those kind of thoughts that really, really motivate a lot of people's behaviors. And so a lot of times someone will be talking about some, you know, maybe some interaction they had that was really emotionally jolting for them. Mm-hmm. Either it made them really happy or it made them really sad or they got really angry at somebody at the checkout line and they're like kind of processing through it. And a lot of the times what we see is anytime that there's a strong emotional reaction, mm-hmm. it's usually generated because of some automatic thought that's sitting there under the surface. Not all automatic thoughts are bad. You know, when we're in a really good state of mind, we all have hopefully a good balance of both positive and negative thoughts that are just sitting there. And, you know, when, when everything is going well and we're not super stressed and, you know, as long as we're not dealing with a clinical depression or like chemical anxiety or things like that, you know, we're all pretty balanced. Mm -hmm. Um, when they were, when they were teaching this approach to us, um, they did this exercise for our class and there's about 10 of us Mm -hmm. and they were just reading through prompts and we were supposed to write down the first thing that came to mind. And, you know, most of them were, you know, pretty out there, but there was one that really stuck out as they were going through it that, that, that really showed me like these, these automatic thoughts are real. Hmm. And I think I'm a fairly healthy human, right? Like (laughs) I, I would hope so. And the, the prompt that, uh, that the teacher read to us went something along the lines of, you know, you go to the store, you see something, it's super expensive, Mm -hmm. but you really want it. So you go home, you know, you save up for a couple weeks or a month and you go back to the store to buy it Mm -hmm. and it's gone. What's your thought? 
And the thought that came to my mind was, I didn't deserve it in the first place. And I was like, <laughs> what? Like, do I, do I really think that? And, and I had to sit back and kind of process through that. And, and I realized that that was actually a thought that I had really often. Hmm. This thought of not deserving good things. Um, and I was able to look back and say, like, wow, that actually influenced some pretty big decisions in my life. Mm-hmm. And if I don't want that to continue to affect my trajectory, I've got to get that in check. Yeah. I've got to start paying attention to when that comes to the surface. And if I do find myself kind of reflexively saying, well, whatever, I didn't deserve it anyway, it's like stopping and intentionally pausing and thinking like, mm, is there evidence right now for whether or not that could actually be true? Mm-hmm. And that's like a silly little example of one little automatic thought, Mm -hmm. but we all have them Oh yeah. and, and helping people to see them, be aware of them and start, start to question them, whether they're true, whether they're not true, maybe they're partially true, Mm -hmm. but that awareness can really change people's trajectory and their outlook. And you see it not only, you know, when you're dealing with depression or anxiety, but just in day-to-day life, when you show up at the gym oh, and the yeah. person doing back squats next to you is sitting there debating whether or not they can put those extra five pounds on. Right. Even a couple days ago, they put 20 more on. <laughs> you got that. Like, you're, you're going to be fine. Right. It's, it's so cool to see not only the prevalence, but, but how people's life can change just with some awareness. Mm-hmm. And it's cool that, like you were saying in the CrossFit affiliate, that now you have these people who you're comfortable being around, who are comfortable being real and honest with you, mm-hmm. who are not afraid to say, hey, yeah, you can put that extra 10 pounds on, or, you know, why are you being so down on yourself? And, <laughs> and those people who are going to check you um, when you bring those thoughts up to the surface, because oftentimes I think it's so hard for us to see it in ourselves Mm-hmm. Um, but much easier to see it in other people. Absolutely. And definitely it's something you've got you've to build that relationship. There has to be a level of rapport before you go and start <laughs> pointing, out, pointing out people's automatic thoughts. Absolutely. Uh, but, but when it's there and when there is that awareness, like I said, it's a beautiful thing starts to happen. And it's, that's the part that I love being a part of. Is, is helping to bring intention and awareness to, to kind of the mundane things that we do on a daily basis. Because mm-hmm. there is so much value. And there, if you live your life with purpose and intention, so much changes. And there's a level of awareness that so many of us just kind of go through the motions of our day without a lot of thought or a lot of intention or not really having set goals or having a bigger purpose in mind, mm-hmm. just kind of going through the motions and, and doing what we do because that's what we've always done. Mm-hmm. And I think from, from the sports psych perspective and being able to work with athletes, just the idea of goal setting, of being really intentional about the things that we do, the reason why we do them mm-hmm. can really change people's trajectory. Absolutely. And I, you know, you've referenced this a couple of times, but I, I was thinking earlier, 
you know, when we talk about CrossFit, Greg Glassman has a great quote about how the needs of Olympic athletes and our grandparents differ in degree, not kind. And, you know, talking about the scalability of CrossFit mm-hmm. and, and fitness. And I think that that's probably also very true when it comes to mental health or the mental side of things, because probably a lot of the things and you know I don't know there's I'm sure a lot of differences too but when you're talking about someone with a serious mental health condition or whether you're talking about someone who's trying to maximize you know their mental game for a sport or for an athletic activity um, there's probably a lot of commonalities or similarities and it's something that I think I noticed too um, you know when I was training to compete at a high level you have such intensity in trying to optimize all of these different areas of your life and your mental game and your visualization and all these things. And people accept that in sports. Like that's a normal thing that you're supposed to do. But then when you go back to regular life and you're just, you know, working or taking care of your family or doing these things, like people don't have the same level of intensity. They don't say, oh, I'm going to visualize my perfect work meeting today or presentation that I have to give and how it's going to go so perfectly and I'm going to be confident and do it just like I practiced. They just sort of do it because that's, you know, kind of accepted. But but I think that there's so many ways that we can take what's what's being done with the top athletes or the kind of best performers in the world and break them down for average people or for people with serious mental illness. Yeah. I mean, humans are humans. And my brain is no different than anybody else's. Mm -hmm. We all have this, we all have the same components. You know, we all have the same hardware, I guess you'd say. Some of our software might be a little differently, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but uh, I 100% agree. Like there, there is only benefit that comes from intention and awareness and living your life with purpose. Mm -hmm. And when you have something as, as clear of a goal as I want to make it to the games or I want to, you know, make it to the Olympics or whatever it is. Like, you know, at that point, the goal is so, so definable Mm -hmm. that it becomes easier to live with that intensity, to make the sacrifices that you need to, to be able to achieve that goal. And one of, one of the biggest things when I work with clients is, is really helping to refine what their goals are Mm. because, like you were saying, as soon as you step away, and I see this happen all the time with athletes after they retire, mm-hmm. you, know, you live your life with all that intensity, all that purpose. Maybe you retire because you achieved your goal, or maybe you got injured, or whatever the case may be, and suddenly you transition out of sport into into daily life. And what do you do now? Mm-hmm. But what is the goal? Why do I wake up in the morning? Mm-hmm. Why? Why should I eat a balanced meal when McDonald's is so much easier? Or, you know, why should I not eat that bag of M&Ms? Because they're sitting on my desk and they want me to eat them. You know, why, why would I say no? And so really being able to identify purpose and, and set goals. And they can be little goals. Mm-hmm. You know, not all of us are going to have a lofty goal of going to the games. Mm-hmm. And, you know, not, not all of us are going to set, like, lofty goals of having professional a professional education or 24 years of schooling (laughs) like that's that's what crazy people do right (laughs) um but but being realistic and 
and really waking up with intention every single morning. One of the exercises that I have a lot of the athletes that I work with that I have them do is first thing in the morning, um, either in a journal that they have near their bed or maybe a sticky pad or whatever the case may be, sometime within the first 15 to 20 minutes of waking up, Mm -hmm. writing down three goals that they're going to achieve for that day. Mm -hmm. And they don't have to be big things. That might be like, I'm going to remember to eat my snack Mm -hmm. after Maybe that's These are important things. Yeah. <laughs> Snacking is very good sometimes. Um, or maybe I need to make a phone call to my mom, or maybe I need to touch base with a friend, mm-hmm. or maybe I just need to like go outside and see the sun because I'm a doctor in a hospital and mm-hmm. I don't get to do that often. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't have to be incredibly lofty goals, but there's something that changes in your brain when you set a goal and then you're able to actually achieve it. Mm-hmm. The, the pleasure center of our brains really lights up anytime we set a goal and we attain it. And when the brain has that, has that pleasure system set off, has that, has that feeling of accomplishment or achievement, people become able to achieve so much more than they initially thought that they could. Mm-hmm. A lot of us accomplish incredible things every single day but we're not paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. And so we don't, we don't mentally give ourselves credit for the hard things that we do on a daily basis. And we get down to the end of the day and we're feeling tired and we're feeling worn out and we're exhausted and we just feel like, ugh, mm-hmm. like that's just another day down, another day wasted. I didn't do anything special today. I didn't save the world, blah, blah, blah. You're focusing on all the things that you didn't get done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, oh, you know, sitting there like, moving the to-do list that you didn't finish till tomorrow's to-do <laughs> yeah. list mentally in your head. And literally, if you stop and you pause and are able to adjust the mindset just for even a brief moment to mm-hmm. what you actually did accomplish, all the things that you were able to get done. Mm-hmm. Maybe you didn't save the world, but maybe, maybe you were able to spend an extra five minutes with a patient and maybe that really made a difference in their life. Mm-hmm. Or Maybe I pushed myself harder than I was planning to in a workout. Maybe I, you know, maybe you hit that wall and you're like, man, I just want to be done right now. And you thought about giving up and you didn't Mm -hmm. like praising yourself for those accomplishments because that is huge. I think we, we give ourselves far less credit than we deserve a lot of the time. And I think being able to set goals, being able to, writing them down makes such a big difference mm-hmm. because then you're actually able to go back and see and prove like, Oh yeah, I did do that. I did remember to eat my snack today <laughs> and <laughs> I, I did accomplish these things. Mm-hmm. And it's a great exercise as far as a check-in in the morning. And then as you're going through like an unwinding or nighttime routine to check back in to see if you actually did accomplish those things. Mm-hmm. And if you did being able to have like a very concrete reward that you're able to give to yourself mm-hmm. for, for being able to achieve those goals that day. It can make a huge difference. I love that. My husband and I have been doing, we heard it somewhere, I think it was maybe two years ago or so, about just finishing the day with your three wins because Mm. we found so many times we were getting ready for bed and we were talking about all the things that we didn't get done or that we had to do tomorrow. And so we started and it just kind of stuck where now the last thing we talk about before we go to bed is like, what were our three wins for the day or three, just three things that you accomplished. And sometimes they are really silly. It's like, mm-hmm. I 
completed another day of residency or, you know, I ate dinner or whatever it might be. But it's, I think, going to bed with that kind of mindset instead of, you know, focusing on the things that you still have to do has made a big difference for us, for sure. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that is a a beautiful intervention for anybody who wants to really increase their performance or start to change their mental mindset. I mean, it, it takes less than five minutes a day Mm -hmm. and it can really make a huge difference and it can make living a lot more fun. Definitely. It's so to-do lists are so satisfying when you can check those things (laughs) off. (laughs) Oh, so much. So I guess at least for like for type A people, but (laughs) maybe not for everyone. Lists might not work for everybody. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people like, especially with list setting, I am an excellent procrastinator. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's one of those things that I'm on kind of a contemplative stage of change because I feel like I do my best work when I put it off to the very, very end. Mm-hmm. And I realized that the reason that I procrastinate so much is when I'm making lists, like, I am really bad at breaking down the big things that I need to do. Wow. We had this, uh, to, to graduate from residency, you have to do a presentation on your, on your senior project, okay. which you are told about day one of residency. <laughs> and you are encouraged to work on this and start preparing, build a project. Like a lot of people will do these, you know, maybe do a research or whatever the case may be. It's, it's supposed to be a big deal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I had been mentally planning it for four years mm-hmm. and actually sat down to do it. And I was there like literally two days before I had to give this presentation. <laughs> Why do I do this? And, oh, and I realized that it had been sitting on my to-do list literally for about three or four months, mm-hmm. not broken down into little components, but simply listed as senior project. <laughs> <laughs> No wonder I didn't do that. Like, there's no right. way I could have sit down and check that off my list. Right. Oh, That's such a being... great example, though, because I think, and it, it brings, you, brings me back to training and to CrossFit. It's because we would never on our list just put down, like, deadlift 300 pounds. Like, mm-hmm. there's always a program and, a, you know, there's stages to get to that point and you go in the gym and you do the programming every day and maybe you have these goals, but you're working towards them. And so... I think for me, training has been a good example of seeing how you really do have to take each day by day and take those little steps. Because if you just think about the big goal, it's like, it's almost paralyzing. Mm-hmm. But Absolutely. again, I still do the same thing. I have things that have been <laughs> sitting on my to-do list forever and I know the date is approaching and I'm going to just do it, you know, a few days before, but I think, and then we think about, you know, in that moment when you're doing it, you're like, why do I do this to myself every single time? But (laughs) (laughs) why? And, and this is something like I talk about this with my patients because a lot of times their anxiety is, is generated from that kind of all or nothing thinking Mm -hmm. that, you know, I have to do this fantastic job or it's not worth doing Mm -hmm. or, you know, these kind of seemingly overwhelming or unsolvable problems. Mm -hmm. And, Literally, I have yet to find any problem that you can't break down into smaller pieces. And so just like you're saying, if you're, if you're training to deadlift 300 pounds, 
it would be incredibly stupid to walk into a gym and just try to lift it <laughs> and do that over and over and over again every day until finally you do like that. It, it's not going to happen, but being able to break it down and develop a plan, make things almost so it's impossible to fail. Mm-hmm. A lot of times being able to break things into those tiny little steps, whether it's literally like sit down and think about your project for three minutes. Like I can do that. Mm-hmm. I could have, if I could have made it that simple, uh, I probably wouldn't have waited two days before my project. <laughs> and I'm really good at telling other people mm-hmm. about the great, the great things that happen when you break things into small pieces. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and taking my own advice is really hard sometimes. But I think it's, really, it's a really good thing for people to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. That the way that we approach sport performance, the way that we walk into a gym, if we have a goal, the way that we would we would create a structured plan to achieve it. Mm-hmm. The rest of life is, is no different. If you want to get a promotion at work or maybe you want to have a bigger friend community or you want to learn something new, whatever it is, like a lot of us, a lot of us can be really good at kind of compartmentalizing our performance in a gym or setting, setting goals there. Because the beauty of CrossFit is like, you have all of these kind of pre-planned kind of metrics Mm -hmm. that you're able to track. And there's fantastic apps where you can track that. (laughs) Like, it's easy to stay on top of that to see if you're, if you're reaching your goals, or if you're moving closer to your goals. Mm -hmm. And, and we are much, we are much less intentional when it comes to achieving goals in the rest of our life whether it's work promotions or something as, as silly as giving a presentation. But and I, I don't know why. Like, I don't know why, why it's so foreign to us as a society to really be intentional about programming life. Mm-hmm. And I think we could do so much better. I think we'd be so much happier if we were a little more intentional in the in the way that we approached life. That's true. I think, I wonder if some of it is just that we can, it's, you have to be vulnerable to do that, to put yourself out there to say, this is what I want to achieve. Because then if you don't achieve it again, you're facing that sense of failure, Mm -hmm. Um, which is, you know, a lot of times why maybe people don't go after big athletic goals or, or don't set any other goals just because you have to put yourself out there a little bit and reach beyond what's comfortable. Yeah. And it's scary. I mean, trying new things. And like you said, like reaching for these lofty goals can be really scary. Mm-hmm. One of, one of the most important lessons I ever learned because perfection is something that I've struggled with my entire life. And literally I, <laughs> we, um, in our residency, we, we have all the incoming residents do the strength finder test, okay. which gives you like four or five positive characteristics mm-hmm. um, that are like your primary strengths mm-hmm. and, you know, you should use these things to be better at work, basically. My number one strength is competitiveness, <laughs> which I didn't, I, I still have a difficult time understanding how that's a strength. Um, <laughs> But I realized that I don't do things if I'm not convinced that I'm, if I'm going to win, like Mm -hmm. literally I have to turn everything I do into a game 
And then I have to decide like, what is winning? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then if I can win, then I will do it. <laughs> if I cannot win, then I, I won't touch it. And it doesn't matter what it is. And I have really had to kind of be intentional and keep that in check because it's that same, it's that same fear of failure, but from a, a slightly, a slightly different angle. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there are, I'm the, I sit on a lot of administrative meetings now and that's not something that I need to walk in and win every day. Uh, <laughs> it's not necessary. And so I, I have had to change my mindset a little bit and I'm not always very good at it, mm-hmm. but that knowing that I am never going to become a not competitive human, the competition has to be healthy. And for me, what that's turned into is kind of, it's a competition of how kind I can be to myself. Mm. Because I know that I'm always, well, I don't always do my best, let's be honest. But in general, I think I'm a decent human. Mm-hmm. I, I'm going to do my best when it comes to taking care of my patients or taking care of my fellow residents, or taking care of my family, things like that. Mm-hmm. Trying hard enough has never been the problem. Aiming for perfection gets in my way mm-hmm. and beating myself up when I can't be perfect 99.9% of the time. It's exhausting and it's useless. Mm-hmm. Like, and nobody needs me to be perfect. Mm-hmm. I, I will never be a perfect mother. And if I beat myself up every day because I wasn't the perfect mother that I wanted to be, Like that doesn't do my kids any benefit. Mm -hmm. All they do is they learn how to beat yourself up for unrealistic goals. And so changing a mindset into, into being able to be more kind to myself, that is what winning has had to become for me. Being able to, to be, to be kind to myself, even when I don't meet the lofty expectations that I've set even if I raise my voice at my child who's like two years old and doesn't listen. Um, <laughs> like that's, that's being human. And I can't beat myself up over that. Mm-hmm. And I, I have a, a five-year-old and an almost two-year-old. <laughs> and having kids changed me so much. And I look at my daughter who's five years old and you see those, those automatic negative thoughts already happening in her brain. Mm. Like, and she, and she doesn't have the frontal lobe filter to not say them out loud yet, so mm-hmm. I get to hear them. <laughs> but I, I, see, I see the thought processes that, that happens, and she looks at me for everything. Like, I am her example, and what do I want her to walk away? What do I want her to grow up in life knowing? Mm-hmm. Do I want her to grow up being a perfectionist who always feels like your best is never going to be good enough? Absolutely not. I want her to try her hardest. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I want her to set goals and I want her to know what it feels like to fail occasionally because mm-hmm. that's human. Like that is just life. And I want her to learn that when you fail, failure is just an opportunity to learn mm-hmm. and being able to accept failure as an opportunity to learn and not a failure as you as a human across the board. That is kindness. And that's much closer to reality than the automatic thoughts that float through my brain. 
I want her to grow up balanced and I want her to grow up kind. And she will never learn that if I don't start learning it myself so I can teach it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a great example. I've been thinking about that a lot lately, just thinking about eventually starting our own family and trying to take a closer look at what are the things that I do and how do I want it? What are some things that I'm going to need to change so that I can set a better example? I think for so many, for so many ways, I think kids are such a great motivator for ourselves (laughs) of how to make ourselves better so that we can be better for them. One of my mentors, it's a quote that I'll never forget. Um, The quote goes, perfection breeds dysfunction. Hmm. What your children need is good enough. And good enough is kind of a catchphrase that we use a lot of in, in therapy. Hmm. Um, if you go and you read a lot of the different therapeutic approaches, a lot of times your role as a therapist is to help your, your client or your patient see that whoever they are, whatever they're bringing to the table, whatever the issues are, mm-hmm. yes, we can always strive for more. And who we are right now is good enough. And that is one of the most beautiful, beautiful ways, I think, to approach life. And it's 100% true. Perfection breeds dysfunction. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) While it is incredibly noble to strive to be your best, perfection perfection is an unattainable goal. Mm -hmm. And if you're constantly reaching for something that's unrealistic, you're never going to find happiness. And so learning how to be intentional, learning how to set reasonable goals, learning how to be kind to yourself when you fail, because that's human, Mm -hmm. and learning to embrace being good enough and still approach life with a mindset of wanting to be better every day. I feel like that, that kind of encapsulates what it means to really be in excellent human and to be able to perform at your best, whether that's performing at your job or performing in a gym, if you're able to approach whatever situation you are in with the belief that who I am right now is good enough Mm -hmm. and I will continue to work and I will continue to be better, but I, but I can be content right where I am. That frees up your mind to generate so much energy and so much power And once you get out all those negative thoughts and the fear of failure and the fear of being judged, whatever the fear is, once you are able to push out that negativity, people's performance shoots through the roof. If you're able to show up to a business meeting and you're not anxious when you give a pitch, it comes across so much better. (laughs) And if you step out onto a competition floor with the mindset of, you know, it doesn't matter where I come in. You know, I've, I've already done the work and this is my victory lap. Mm -hmm. You are going to perform so much better than you would if you walked out on that floor beating yourself up for not having trained as hard as the next person over or, you know, uh, beating yourself up because you, you had a cheat day 27 days ago (laughs) and the, and the other person who's probably going to win now, they probably (laughs) didn't have that cheat day, right? Like, there are so many things that we can hold against ourselves, and it doesn't do us any good. Yeah. So true. 
I wanted to shift a little bit and talk about, you mentioned earlier that a third of our population at some point has some sort of clinical anxiety or depression. Is that the stat that you made? Mm -hmm. So I think about this a lot because I think, number one, there's so much stigma around it. And especially now working in primary care, that's a common you know complaint that people come in with. There's a lot of stigma around a diagnosis, and then there's a lot of stigma around taking medications. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of wanted to just talk about that as a topic. And because, again, I think there is this huge spectrum. We all have these feelings, and from time to time, we're all going to feel more anxious or we're going to feel more down. Um, and there's a lot of things that we can do to intervene or to kind of manage those feelings. Um, And it's sort of similar to, like I think of it like other chronic diseases that we treat. They don't just all of a sudden happen and now you have this diagnosis. There's a whole process leading up to it. And they're also not, not terminal diagnoses where you have to have one and be on a medication for the rest of your life. Um, because there's so many other things that we can do to manage other than medications and in conjunction with medications. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that, you know, I, I know we always learn how therapy and medications together are way more powerful than just one or the other, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of even, you know, lifestyle things that we can do that have a huge impact on our mood. So maybe you can just talk a little bit about your approach to kind of those really common things that, that you see and how people can, you know, on their own or when they, you know, feel like they need to seek professional help, how they can start to manage. Mm -hmm. So those are great questions. Oh, (laughs) that was a lot. I I could talk for hours. Um, What I would say, trying to be kind of brief, depression, anxiety, it's a huge spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially, I mean, you look at anxiety and all of us have anxiety. If we weren't anxious, the human race would be dead. <laughs> um, if you didn't get anxious when a bear growled, like the caveman wouldn't have run away and we would, we would not have survived. Right. Um, and so some anxiety is absolutely necessary. And a lot of times when I talk with people, like anxiety is not comfortable, right? Like that primitive just kind of gut reaction where your body responds to something and says like, Ooh, this could kill me. I should run. Like Mm -hmm. that's not comfortable because the fear of dying should never be comfortable. Um, (laughs) sometimes it's reasonable, but the problem that that has happened is our brains still have that very deep instinctual wiring to respond to threats. Mm -hmm. And not many of us are running into grizzly bears anymore. Um, but there are a lot of different kind of triggers are in our environment that sets off that system. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us live under such chronic stress and chronic anxiety that we, we don't realize how amped up that anxiety system is. Mm-hmm. And again, some anxiety is absolutely necessary. Um, it, it would be unrealistic Um, when I'm working with people to say that they're never going to feel anxious again, or if we're working with depression, that they're never going to feel sad again or things like that. Absolutely not. Like 
feelings are 100% natural. And the goal is never to change feeling per Mm -hmm. se, because feelings themselves are not the problem. The feelings become a problem in my mind when they're tied to those automatic thoughts, Mm -hmm. right? Now, if I'm sad and that sadness somehow reinforces a thought that I'm unlovable or I'll never be good enough, like that's, that's much more the issue. Mm -hmm. Um, and with anxiety, there's a lot of other more common automatic thoughts that kind of go along with that. Um, so everybody has that balance of positive and negative thoughts. And as long as that's not interfering with function, as long as you're able to show up and you know, do your best at work or bring your best to your family or whatever it is that you're wanting to do, if you're, if you're managing emotion and you're allowing yourself to have those feelings and it's not interfering with your day-to-day activities. And that's, that is a hundred percent normal. Mm-hmm. Um, where treatment becomes really helpful is when, when those feelings and those automatic thoughts are starting to interfere. Mm-hmm. Right. So, uh, performance anxiety is something that we see a lot of. And I like the example of performance anxiety because between performing right? Someone with performance anxiety feels perfectly fine. Mm -hmm. Um, with performance anxiety, you're, you have a very obvious trigger. Mm -hmm. And so it, it can be a little easier to address. Um, I've changed my mind. I don't really like that example. (laughs) Um, I'm trying to not fall down a complete rabbit hole. I, I guess it's, in short, what I would say is, is everybody can benefit from, from taking a moment to pause and to introspect. And anytime you're having any strong emotional response, whether it's a positive emotion or a negative emotion, whatever it is, and pausing to just think for a moment, like, why am I feeling this? Like, why, why am I so happy right now? Mm -hmm. And and if it's anxiety or if it's sadness, really stopping to think where, where is that coming from? And if you find yourself getting stuck in an emotion, that's, that's where more focused treatment can be helpful. Um, I, I find myself using mostly kind of a cognitive behavioral approach when I work with patients. Um, I like it because it has a lot of structure and it's really accessible and it's, it's not as threatening as uh, a lot of people have built up in their mind what they think therapy is because society portrays psychiatrists and therapists in a really negative light. Yeah. Um, the old couch and the, I, I am sitting in my okay. office right now. Uh, there is a couch is incredibly uncomfortable. Nobody <laughs> lays on that couch ever. Uh, <laughs> it would, it would not help anybody's situation, <laughs> but Anybody, anybody can benefit from that level of intention. Um, one of my favorite resources for people who, who feel like they are struggling or feel like mentally they're getting held back, even if they're not to the point of maybe having a clinical depression or a clinical anxiety, um, but a really good resource is The Feeling Good Book by Dr. David Burns. Mm. Um, and that is, it's an incredibly accessible resource to read through, and it really it really helps you understand where a lot of motivation comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you do struggle with anxiety, it can help to kind of start shifting the mental framework 
mm-hmm. um, and really helping people be more intentional and aware of what's happening in their own mind. Um, the that book I've seen be incredibly helpful in 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 helping patients manage both anxiety, depression, anger, procrastination. Um, by really just increasing people's awareness and their intention mm-hmm. as, as they're approaching things in their daily life. And that um, really teaches CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, correct? I think correct. we went through that in my, in my med school. Our, one of our deans was a psychiatrist, and she had like an elective where we kind of went through that book, and I agree. It was, we went through it during second year while we were all studying for step one, and there was a lot of anxiety happening. And mm-hmm. so I think it was very instructive for us personally and to, you know, learn about CBT for patients. I love it because anybody can benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Like I said, when they were teaching us and there was that silly example of like wanting to buy something really expensive and then it's, it's not at the store. Like, yeah. really? <laughs> do, I, do I really think that? And just that ability to bring attention and awareness can be incredibly helpful mm-hmm. beyond that. So if, if you've done everything that you possibly can, right, there's really good evidence that balanced meals, regular, like a set sleep schedule, um, good sleep hygiene. There's good research that's come out recently as far as strength training, being very protective mm-hmm. against depression and anxiety. Um, there's research in the past where like 30 minutes of light aerobic activity can be very protective against anxiety disorders. You know, is if you're managing all of those things and you're doing your best to keep, you know, like, again, protect your sleep, protect your diet, stay active, do all those things, and you still feel like emotionally you're stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where I would encourage people to, to absolutely reach out to their provider and mm-hmm. let them know what's going on. Because Society has placed so much stigma on mental health, and it shouldn't be that way. Mm-hmm. There, was a, there was a really great article that I was reading, I don't know if it was the Huffington Post or where it was, um, after with the recent suicide from Kate Spade. Mm. Um, just talking about how as a society we're comfortable talking about breast cancer and testicular cancer, and we know what our athletes struggle with when it mm-hmm. comes to an injury or if they have cancer, mm-hmm. Right. Like that's, that's public knowledge. We're perfectly comfortable as a society talking about those things. Mm-hmm. But so many people struggle with mental health and somehow we sweep it under the rug mm-hmm. to the point that, that somebody who's suffered with mental illness for so long and so great, nobody knew about it. Right. Su- suicide doesn't just happen one day. That, that is a process of a disease that, that inserts itself in a in your brain like a virus and takes years to develop. Mm -hmm. It's something as a society that we need to start talking about a lot more. And if you, if you do feel like you're getting stuck either with those feelings of sadness or depression or anxiety, reaching out for help is, is one of the biggest things that you can do for yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing, just as a side note that I would say about depression, you know, a lot of us, we look at depression or if we haven't struggled with depression ourselves, just assume depression is a choice and you're mm-hmm. just being sad. And if you just get out of bed or get off the couch, things are going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Um, depression, we know, is incredibly biologic. Depression is a chemical change that happens in the brain. People who have struggled with depression for long periods of their life, if you do functional MRI imaging, the brain is actually different. Mm-hmm. 
the cool thing is if you get treatment either with therapy or medications, both is the quickest, Mm -hmm. we can redo those functional brain imaging and we see that the brain is able to correct itself and heal. And that's, that is incredible. But because it is biologic for a lot of people, you know, being balanced and and doing their best to manage life, right? A lot of times it's not enough because depression and anxiety carry a huge genetic, Mm -hmm. a genetic component. Um, A lot of the times when I talk to patients, there's a fear that medication will somehow change them, Mm -hmm. um, change their personality, um, turn them into somebody that they're not, all this stuff. Um, And I like to believe that my medications are magical and somehow if you took them, suddenly you live in a, like a world of rainbows and unicorns <laughs> and like everything is happy and wonderful. And that's not at all the case. <laughs> medication cannot change who you are. Um, medication allows you to be the best version of yourself. And, and that's the way that I like to paint it for my patients is mm-hmm. anxiety and depression is a disease that's changing the way that you think. It's changing the way that you're able to function. Mm-hmm. And that's not who you are. Mm-hmm. Who you are is free of those things. And if we, can, if we can free your brain from this disease, you're able to bring your best self to your family, to your work, to the gym, to whatever it is that you want to do. Mm-hmm. So being, being willing to give medications a try if it's recommended is one of the most powerful things that people can do. One of the things that's, that's just incredible when you're working with, working with patients is what we see what happens, especially with depression, is that when you're struggling with depression, the chemical shift that happens in the brain takes away your frontal lobe's ability to filter or to question those negative thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. Like I said, a healthy brain has usually has a balance between positive and negative. And when the chemical shift that happens in depression, when that occurs, the negative thoughts start to take over. And it's incredible to sit and be able to have the opportunity when you have patients on medication and you start them on medication, maybe the first time you see them for the initial assessment, um, it's, it's almost like a broken record of negative thoughts mm-hmm. where, you know, they're, they're just a terrible person. There's, there's nothing, there's, you know, there's nothing that you could ever say that could make them feel less guilty for being so terrible, for letting everybody like mm-hmm. just somehow everything they've done in life is a failure. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and you know, the medication goes in your brain and especially like the SSRIs. Um, so like the mainstay treatment for, de- for depression or anxiety, it goes in and it teaches your brain how to make the chemicals um, that when you're depressed, the brain kind of stops making. Mm -hmm. And that takes time. And so a lot of times when I follow up with someone in four weeks, maybe, maybe they have a little more energy. Maybe they feel like their motivation is coming back a little bit. Maybe there's things that they're looking forward to now that a couple weeks before they weren't. But a lot of those negative thoughts are still there. Mm -hmm. But when you see them three months, six months, nine months, sometimes a year down the line and you say, and it's talking to a, it, it almost seems like a completely different human because those negative thoughts, that guilt that just sits there, those, Mm -hmm. those feelings of constantly being a failure of not being able to find anything decent or a value about themselves, Mm -hmm. being able to see them healthy and being able to see a much more balanced view of Mm themselves. That is the best part of my job. 
and being able to see people accomplish things that they never thought that they would be able to is it makes getting up in the morning worth it. And as a society, we need to do more because there are far too many people who have struggled for far too long thinking that, that this is life and this is who they are and this is the way that it's stuck and that's just the way that it has to be. And that's not the case at all. Mm-hmm. There is hope and there are a ton of options and there are a ton of, a ton of things that can be done outside of, of medications. Sometimes they're necessary. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a great point because I think for a lot of people, part of the stigma is, you know, I should be able to fix this myself. Like I, if I accept a medication, it means that like, I'm not strong enough or I'm not capable of handling this on my own, which is like you said, it's completely backwards when you think about what's going on with the brain chemistry. But, Mm -hmm. but I think that's one of the really cool and amazing things about being in the position, um, that we're in, in modern medicine is that we have all these really amazing tools that can help people get to a certain place. But we Mm -hmm. also now, I think as a medical system, we're starting to, or at least a lot of people are starting to understand that there's so much else that needs to be set up and done outside of medications in order to help people thrive in their lives and using them appropriately as one of many tools and that mm-hmm. maybe not, you know, maybe doesn't need to be a permanent tool. Maybe it does. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just very empowering. And I think that, that, you know, people, I, I hope that there, that we can work on that stigma going away because even you see it in, in chronic disease, I think there's a huge, you know, this wellness movement and all of these people who are so focused on, unhealthy eating and lifestyle and that, you know, if we just do all of these things, we'll be healthy and we won't, you know, we won't need ever need medications. And I think that, you know, that's amazing and it's true for so many people. And I would love to never have to prescribe a medication, but I think that sometimes they're necessary and needed and can help people get to a certain place, but should certainly never be the only thing that we're doing for our patients. Absolutely. And it's the same thing in mental health as it is when you're managing like the chronic diseases that we're much more accepting of like Mm -hmm. diabetes and hypertension, all of that Mm -hmm. prevention is so much better. Mm -hmm. If, if when you're feeling well, you know, if that's the time that you put the effort in, in really building a lifestyle of wellness, of taking good care of yourself, of building in healthy habits, of, of learning to pay attention to your feelings and your thoughts and being as intentional about your mental health as you are about preventing diabetes or preventing blood pressure problems or any of those things. Mm-hmm. If, if as a society we became as intentional about that as we have recently been in, you know, like more healthy food movements and mm-hmm. get up and move and all of that, mm-hmm. I think we would save a lot of people a lot of struggle because prevention, prevention works. Mm-hmm. So and, true. and we, oh, I could go on for hours, but <laughs> I mean, we talked about a lot of ways already for people like like we talked about goal setting we talked about 
being intentional about the thoughts that you're having and when you react emotionally? Are there just trying to think of practical ways that people can think about this in terms of how can they set themselves up to best prevent themselves from having issues down the road? So one of the approaches that, um, that has some of the most evidence behind it as far as being beneficial, mm-hmm. um, the practice of mindfulness mm-hmm. is, is huge. So mindfulness is literally turning your intention inwards to just being aware. Um, and it's not something that takes a ton of time. And the cool thing with, with the practice of mindfulness is that you can do it anywhere. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, you can take five minutes of, you know, while you're eating lunch to be mindful or as you're driving into work. But that, that ability to, to intentionally kind of calm your brain and bring your awareness inwards, that is incredibly protective um, when it comes to managing emotions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, there's a lot of good kind of resources online. Um, if people just YouTube mindfulness, there's mm-hmm. like five to 10 minute exercises that pull up that just kind of walk you through it. And it's, it's an exercise. Um, it's a way of working out your brain. It's incredibly difficult. <laughs> um, the first couple of times I tried it, I got incredibly anxious because I don't like sitting still mm-hmm. and I don't like doing less things. <laughs> Especially in the world we live in today where there's just stimulation constantly. It's exactly. programmed for so the, it. The first couple of times I tried it, I thought it was the worst thing ever because like, what, how is this helping? I feel more anxious. <laughs> and I realized, no, I'm not actually feeling more anxious. I feel like this all the time. <laughs> I am just paying attention to it and I don't like it because it's uncomfortable, <laughs> which is why I keep myself busy. So I don't think about the fact that I am stressed and my mind is so cluttered with the a million things that I have to do. Mm-hmm. And the more you practice mindfulness and you exercise your brain, you become, you become much better able to manage that internal state. And you become much more aware when that just kind of baseline stress and anxiety starts creeping up during the day. Mm-hmm. It gives you an opportunity to check and be like, hey, I don't like this feeling right now. And, and being able to tune in and get it in check. Mm-hmm. The the other things that are in probably the most accessible for people, um, breath control. Mm. Control is, is one of the, the primary tools that I use when I'm working with people. Um, when it comes to your autonomic nervous system, you know, like being able to control pupil dilation or whether or not you have to pee or whatever. However, it is a, with intention, you are able to train your brain to kind of override that unconscious control. And the respiratory cycle or breathing exercises are, are usually the most accessible place for most people to start to learn how to exert conscious awareness over their nervous system. And the nervous system is what gets activated when you're feeling anxious. That's what's making your heart beat rapidly or making you start to sweat or making it feel like the world is caving in on you. Mm-hmm. So being able to build in a respiratory or a breathing routine is really helpful for a lot of people. Um, when I work with athletes, it's really important to be able to control that system. When, when you're walking into a gym, right, like if it's just you 
you know, just day to day, or maybe you're working out by yourself. Like for a lot of people, it's hard to, to harness enough act, enough energy to get the activation they need to get a really good workout, like Mm -hmm. to feel like they've actually pushed themselves to that limit. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so for them, you know, we, we do different exercises to actually do the opposite, to increase that kind of fight or flight type of response okay. to get more energy release. Most people don't need that. Most people in our society need to learn how to chill out and relax. <laughs> yeah. And so for that, um, again, if you, if you YouTube um, just breathing for relaxation, there's some good things that come up. Mm-hmm. Um, but mainly the take home for that is, when you're thinking about breathing to relax, um, the time during the day that our body is most relaxed is at sleep. And so the sleep breathing, the deep sleep breathing is what you try to emulate um, just without actually being asleep, <laughs> which is is kind of a, a gentle breathing in and then a more prolonged expiration. Um, and as you get better and better with this, you know, there's, there's people who are able to, to get the respiratory rate down from like the average of 16 to 17 per minute, all the way down to like three or four breaths per minute. Wow. And in doing that, it just, it tells the body that it's time to slow down. It's mm-hmm. time to conserve. It's time to relax. Mm-hmm. Um, and you see the heart rate start to drop, um, for people who have practiced it really well, you'll actually start to see on like an EEG, mm-hmm. um, the brain waves start to change into more of a sleep pattern, even though they're sitting there talking to you and awake. Um, So that's one of one of the really accessible things for people, because again, when you start paying attention to your emotional state, if you feel your anxiety coming up and you're sitting there in a meeting, you can stop. You can change your breathing pattern. Nobody else around you is going to be aware of it. Mm-hmm. And you can tell your body, hey, it's time to relax. It's time to chill out. There is not a bear about to attack me. It is just my boss. He is scary, but I'm going to be okay. <laughs> and you can, use, you can use the breath cycling mm-hmm. to really modulate your internal system. And what we've seen is that emotion and the body are so closely intertwined. It's, it is impossible to, to think of them as different systems. Mm-hmm. And when your heart starts racing because you have like atrial fibrillation, mm-hmm. like when, ha- when your heart goes into AFib, you feel anxious. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same thing happens in reverse, right? When I'm feeling anxious, my heart rate increases. And so by being able to use the breath cycle to regulate that system, people see a lot of benefit. Um, other than that, oh, there's so many great ideas. I mm-hmm. guess my other favorite one, um, and this kind of ties into the idea of goal and purpose, mm-hmm. um, but being able to have kind of a, a personal mantra of yes. sorts. Um, when I hate running. Um, <laughs> I absolutely hate it. I feel like most and gymnasts hate running. <laughs> it, it is terrible for me. It's something that we we do. It is boring. <laughs> it is. Oh, I have no good things to say about running. Yeah. My best friend decided that I needed to embrace running. Mm. And I don't like running because it's hard for me. Like my body is designed to lift heavy things. Mm-hmm. I can do that. Like mm-hmm. as a gymnast, we're not built for endurance. Like we're <laughs> built for really short bursts of, of power. Right. And when I was running, like I just wanted to quit. Like literally, I would be a quarter mile into a five mile run, and I'm like, "This is the worst thing ever." Like, this is, <laughs> I feel terrible. I don't want to do this. I just, I just make it stop. And, and it became oh, it's so good for me because I work with athletes, and we work through like getting through that wall with them. Right. And 
that was one of the first times in in recent years where I hit it myself. And I was like, man, I don't, I don't want to do this. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm like coming up with all these excuses in my head. Like, what can I tell her that we could stop? Could I be (laughs) nauseous? Do I have a stomach ache right now? Like, do Do I have to go to the bathroom? (laughs) What what is happening? (laughs) And, and so I, I took some time to think through like kind of that mental wall and a way, a positive way to speak to it. Mm -hmm. And for me, the thing that worked was literally repeating to myself, I can do hard things Mm. because I believe that. Um, I do hard things all day long. I went to school for 24 years. Like I can't argue with the fact that I can do hard things. Mm -hmm. And so as we were running and I would get that, that feeling of just wanting to quit, I would literally just start repeating that to myself over and over in my head. Mm -hmm. I can do hard things. I can do hard things. (laughs) And before I knew it, I actually enjoyed running. Wow. It didn't last for very long. (laughs) (laughs) But you did it. I I did it. And I I was able to stay with the training regimen and and meet the random goal that I had set, which was I wanted to run a 10K. Um, And I did that. And I am now convinced that I can do hard things. And if the world was ending, I can run three miles. That's, <laughs> I can do that. And I won't die. But being able to be intentional and have that kind of mantra all through the day. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and it's something that I've started to incorporate literally like with little sticky notes throughout mm-hmm. my house. When I wake up in the morning, I have a sticky note on the mirror that says I can do hard things, mm-hmm. which makes going to work when you have some terrible thing, like some, some big, scary presentation that you have to do so much right. easier. Right. Like, yes, it is scary and it is hard and I can do hard things. Mm-hmm. Being intentional about giving yourself positive feedback is so important. And, and when you're thinking about developing a positive mantra for yourself, it has to be something that when you're in that deep, dark place, you can't argue with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, if my mantra was like, I'm the best runner ever, um, that would not work because that's <laughs> not true. Um, and so it has to be something that's realistic, but that it is, it's power enough, powerful enough to speak to you when you're in that place. Mm-hmm. I love that. I love- how to kind of going off of that, do you have any advice for people? Maybe it's not, you know, running, um, but just an average day or doing things that are part of their normal routine, but they're just not feeling it. Like you're waking up at 5 a.m. to go to the gym, which is what you do every day, but you just really don't want to go. Mm-hmm. How do you help yourself get into that mental space or find that motivation? Mm-hmm. So, having routine is incredibly important. So, um, a lot of times when I work with, work with athletes that optimizing their performance, like waking up in the morning is really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, so being able to have a built in wake up routine, part of that for a lot of people is having a positive mantra mm-hmm. that literally when you're laying there and the alarm clock goes off and you look over and it's five o'clock, you say, why? I don't, I don't want right. to do this right now. I like, could just go the, back to sleep. The rest of the world is sleeping. They wouldn't, they won't know if I get up, um, being able to have, have that positive mantra, like, and being intentional about setting it beforehand mm-hmm. and practicing it every day mm-hmm. is incredibly powerful. Um, for me, the, the statement be better every day is incredibly motivating. Mm-hmm. Um, because when I'm laying there at bed <laughs> and the alarm clock goes off and I just want to stay there. Mm-hmm. Me staying in bed does not help me reach the goal. 
mm-hmm. of being better. Um, and if I do choose to stay in bed and snooze for two hours, um, my motto of better every day still holds true. Mm-hmm. And being better at that moment means being kind to myself mm-hmm. and not beating me, beating myself up all day long because I chose to sleep in. Right. So yeah, it, because it sometimes you need sleep. <laughs> That's it. Sometimes, sometimes more important. <laughs> sometimes it's necessary. Yeah. Um, so being, being intentional, choosing those kind of positive mantra, those positive self-talk, and practicing them throughout the day, especially on days when you're feeling good. Mm-hmm. Those are the best days to be intentional about building them in. The other thing for people is if, if you try to implement these things when you need them, mm-hmm. they're not going to be incredibly effective. You've got to spend time just like you aren't going to walk into the gym and try to deadlift 300 pounds if your last PR was 180. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to have a plan. And when it comes to mental preparation, it requires the same level of the same level of intention and as, as any other training program. It's mm-hmm. not going to happen overnight. Um, being able to shift to that more internal motivation where you're able to harness that energy when you're having those bad days, that takes practice. Mm-hmm. It's, and it's not going to happen naturally. Um, and so it's, it's incredibly important that people, that people develop a plan that they invest in being intentional and, and that they put as much focus on their mental training as they would for their physical training, because it's not going to happen overnight. There is, there is a quote that I heard. Uh, oh, who was it? He was, he was talking about needing to be intentional because nobody, nobody drifts into success. Mm. Um, I mean, physics is incredibly, the study of physics is incredibly true. Like you can't argue with the fact that if you leave something to itself, chaos is going to ensue. <laughs> None of us accidentally get stronger. Right. None of us accidentally become more organized. Mm-hmm. Nobody accidentally chooses carrots over potato chips. It's just, <laughs> it doesn't happen. And so it requires a level of intention, a level of investment. Um, and it's something that you've got to put the work in day in and day out if you want to become more mentally tough. Mm-hmm. I love that I love taking just sort of taking ownership over your mental preparation the same way we do with our physical or with other things in our life mm-hmm. I love it well I want to close with three questions I ask everyone on the podcast and probably we'll pull from a lot of things that you've already been talking about but the first one is uh, three things that you do on a regular basis that have the biggest positive impact on your health mm-hmm. So I'd say one of probably the most positive thing that a couple of years ago I didn't put enough value in mm-hmm. was putting setting time aside to spend time with humans mm. just for the sake of being around other humans mm-hmm. <laughs> and outside of work outside of family and that's what my 5 a.m. my, my 5 a.m. prospect class has become I love it is it is a group of people who all come from so many different backgrounds with, with so many different life stories, so many different ages, so like so many things that, that make us different. Mm-hmm. And yet we all show up at 5 a.m. and we have a shared goal. And that brings so much more meaning and so much purpose and so much fun to my life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just giving myself a break that I don't have to be the doctor all day long. Mm-hmm. I don't have to be a mother well, I do have to be a mother 24 hours a day, but there is one hour in my day where they are still sleeping and I 
I just get to be, I just get to be me, mm-hmm. another, just another human in the world of humans surrounded by other people who also want to be better every day. Um, oh, I have to come up with two other things. That's <laughs> going to be hard. Um, I think learning how to relax, I might only have to learning how to relax has been the other thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, in society, we reward our, our society rewards us for being busy mm-hmm. and, and learning how to relax has been incredibly hard for me. And I realized like my, my kids don't need me to do things for them. Mm-hmm. My kids need me to be able to sit down and do nothing with them. And so really trying to be intentional at, at teaching myself that it's okay to relax, that it's okay to do nothing for a while. It's okay to just be present with people and just to hang out and to listen Mm -hmm. and to be there for my kids and not have an agenda. Mm -hmm. Um, That's huge. And that is a daily struggle. I feel you on that one. (laughs) That's great. I'll, I'll let that go for two because those were two really (laughs) good ones. (laughs) My second question is what is one thing that you're working on or something that you think would have a big impact on your health, but you have a hard time implementing it. So I have a problem. And that <laughs> problem is that I love coffee. And I, I love all kinds of coffee. That's and so funny coffee. because I just read yesterday that coffee was protective against depression. I read that too. <laughs> and uh, So it doesn't sound like a problem. I didn't, I didn't read any other article that said it might be bad for me. <laughs> The problem is I like coffee more than I like water Uh, and I need to drink more water. It's something so simple. I literally, I sit with this giant water bottle on my desk um, in an attempt to motivate me (laughs) to actually stay hydrated with something like water. And it's hard. It's It's really hard for me. And I rarely meet my water goal every day. (laughs) But you have a goal. (laughs) My excuse is that my, in my office, my office is like the very end of the hall and the water is just so far away. (laughs) I have to interrupt my productivity so much. And that is the dumbest excuse that you could possibly make. (laughs) Oh, but I use it so often. That's a good one. I think we can all probably do better. Most of us can do better. I can do better at water. Definitely. Um, My last question is what does a healthy life look like to you? Mm. I think what it looks like is going to change with, with different periods in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the word that I would want to apply to all of those different stages is balance. I Balance is hard and balance requires a level of intention. You don't accidentally make time for everything that matters. Um, And for me, I've chosen that I want to be a good wife. I want to be a good mother. I want to be a great psychiatrist. And I want to stay somewhat fit. And it's hard to to fit all of those things in. It's a lot of Uh, things. It it is a lot of things. (laughs) And so being able to keep priorities straight, realizing what's important, um, and that if it's not a priority, it's okay to say no. Because balance is critical, and it's Mm -hmm. so easy for things to fall out of balance. So true. I love that. And I love that you said that it will change with different phases of life, because I think that 
we all experience that, but it's, you know, it's hard to let go when those priorities shift or to, to reorganize things in your mind about what's important and what am I going to say yes to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been really fun. And I feel like there's still so many more questions that I would love to ask you, but I think in the interest of time, we should probably cut it <laughs> off here. But thank you so much for spending the time and for sharing all of your insight. Um, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I could talk for days. So this (laughs) has been incredibly enjoyable for me. Um, But I want to commend you on the work that you do. Oh, thank you. Because being able to be a voice for balance and a voice for health and a voice for pursuing excellence Mm -hmm in so many different phases of your life. It's a beautiful thing. It's true. We're all working on it together, but I think that it's exciting to be part of a community that I think has such a well-rounded perspective and has so many good things going for us. And I think that, you know, we're just, we're just able to keep spreading that and having a positive impact on each other. So it's exciting. Absolutely. Awesome. Well, thank you. Hey, y'all. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode. I love chatting with Dr. Eller and especially some of her practical tips for how to enhance mental performance, such as creating a mantra or monitoring your negative self-talk. I want to know now, what are some strategies you've found to be helpful to sharpen your mental game? Share them with us on social media using hashtag pursuing health. To make sure you never miss an episode and to receive exclusive content from me, head to my website, juliefouché.com and subscribe to my email list. If you like what you heard, don't forget to subscribe and consider giving the podcast a five-star rating on iTunes. Also, don't forget to share your stories. If you or someone you know has used lifestyle to overcome a serious health challenge, please send me an email at info at I'll choose some of these inspiring stories to share here on future episodes. Don't forget you can train with me through Beyond the Whiteboard by visiting trainwithjuliefouché.com. Thank you again so much for listening, and I'll catch you next time on Pursuing Health. This episode is brought to you by a company that's made my life significantly easier, and that's Thrive Market. Thrive Market is an online marketplace, and they're on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. It allows you to shop for thousands of the best-selling non-GMO foods and natural products, always at 25 to 50% below retail prices. But as a Pursuing Health listener, you'll receive an additional 25% off your first purchase, plus a free 30-day trial if you visit www.thrivemarket.com forward slash ph. My husband Danny and I have been ordering from Thrive Market for years, and it's helped us to maximize our efficiency with grocery shopping and meal prep in the midst of our busy schedules through medical training. Using Thrive Market, we can shop for all of our staple grocery items, things like nut butters, cooking oils, snacks, dressings, coffee and tea, even personal care products, eco-friendly cleaning supplies, and non-toxic beauty products. We know that they're coming from a curated list of products we can trust. 
Whether you're looking for paleo, vegan, ketogenic, gluten-free, non-GMO, sustainably farmed, fair trade certified, or any of 80 plus other types of products, you can easily find them by filtering on Thrive Market's platform. And they're all at prices 25 to 50% below retail. Even better, these items are shipped straight to your doorstep, so you never have to worry about the time or hassle of grocery shopping. Here's a few other reasons to love Thrive Market. First, they're the very first company in the country to go 100% zero waste. All of their packaging, boxes, and inserts are made from recycled paper and are recyclable themselves. They're the largest retailer in the country that sells exclusively non-GMO groceries, and more than 70% of the Thrive Market catalog cannot be found on Amazon. It provides greater access to high-quality products at prices comparable to conventional products in supermarkets. This helps to decrease the barriers to healthy living for everyone. We also have the opportunity to vote with our forks every single day to change our food environment in this country, and Thrive Market can help us do so by supporting companies that are also working towards this mission and producing high-quality, healthy, and sustainable foods. So that's why I love Thrive. Thrive's mission, again, is to make healthy living easy and approachable to everyone, and this aligns perfectly with my own personal mission and that of pursuing health. Because it's been such a lifesaver for me, I wanted to share the benefits of Thrive Market with all of you, and they've responded with an amazing offer. So once again, head to thrivemarket.com forward slash PH to receive 25% off your first purchase plus a free 30-day trial. Again, this is on top of their already 25 to 50% below retail prices. Why not try it out and do your grocery shopping from home this week? I hope you can take advantage of this offer and enjoy their service as much as I have. Once again, head to thrivemarket.com forward slash PH to learn more. No discount code necessary. Just shop around and the discount will be applied at checkout. This episode is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox delivers 100% grass-fed and finished beef, free-range organic chicken, and heritage-breed pork directly to your doorstep. Now, I think meat can have a place in a well-rounded diet, but there's a huge, huge difference when it comes to animals raised in feedlots that are fed primarily corn and soy and routinely given growth hormones and antibiotics, and those that are responsibly raised, fed their natural diet, and never given growth hormones or antibiotics. ButcherBox gives me some peace of mind, knowing that I can trust my meat is the highest quality out there and that it will taste amazing. They allow you to order curated or custom boxes of meat, and they always come with recipe ideas for you to explore. My husband, Danny, and I are super excited about firing up our backyard grill this summer to enjoy our ButcherBox selections with tons of vegetables from our local CSA. And you can join us. ButcherBox is extending an awesome offer to you for listening to Pursuing Health. Just head to butcherbox.com forward slash Julie for $20 off your order plus a free order of their delicious bacon. Again, that's butcherbox.com forward slash Julie. Hope you can check it out and that it makes your life a little bit easier just as it has done for us. 